Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today I want to talk about stories. Now I happen to believe stories are compelling and I know from my own original research from ages ago that they're memorable. They're also far more persuasive than just the facts and ultimately they're what captures the culture. So the power of the story or of the narrative is all around and I think it's a particularly untapped resource for leaders, both in being more persuasive or inspiring, as well as in how we understand our role as a leader. Now to use this resource well though, we need better frameworks for understanding our own stories, what stories I have to tell, how to frame those stories, and most importantly, importantly, what stories people want to hear. So with me today is Annette Simmons. And Annette is a successful consultant and the author of four books, including The Story Factor, which is in its third edition, I might add, and named one as the 100 best books of all time. As well as she's also authored Whoever Tells the Best Story Wins, she's authored Territorial Games, Understanding and Ending Turf Wars at Work, And finally, A Safe Place for Dangerous Truths. So as you can tell, Annette is about the communications and the ways in which we come together inside organizations, story being a part of that. Now, Annette consults with organizations who use storytelling to improve communication culture and quality. Her new research draws from an ever-growing collection of true stories told by powerful women that reveal how feminine narratives about power, control, and decision-making criteria differ from masculine narratives, and I would argue feminine from masculine, not just women from men. So her next book, Come Future Time, on another show, Women and Power, The Power to Protect. Um, So that one's a teaser for things to come. Today, our focus is on the story factor. So Annette, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Delighted to have you. I am so excited to hear about this one. I have followed your work for quite a while, so it's great fun to have you on on the show. Start with me, though, about why stories. What makes stories so compelling to you? Why did you care so much about talking about them and writing about them? That's funny you say, what makes them compelling? That's what I wanted the first title, the title of the book to be before it became the story factor was compelling. Um, I think that a lot of people look at storytelling as a tool, but really it's a resource. It's kind of like, you know, one of the the original forces of nature, um, fire, wind, earth, and story. And so in understanding uh, this force of nature, the idea of the stories that we use to help us make sense of the world, world, and then that then control our behavior and how we perceive others, we understand that there's layers of truth. So uh, all of us have said one thing and done another, and that's one of the problems with with organizations is when you have people professing their beliefs and yet their behaviors are different. I discovered that if I could get them to tell me a story, it would reveal the rivers of meaning underneath what we say we think that actually uh, uh, describes and reveals what we're doing and what we must actually believe, what the deeper stories are. 
And when I discovered that, I realized that there were norms that um, are controlling our behavior that we can only get to via story. And I think that storytelling is actually how we collaboratively create and choose our norms. And if you want to know how to change behavior, then uh, figuring out where those norms are, what norms are contributing to the behavior and what point of view might change a perspective and thus change the behavior is the, the work of a storyteller. Wow. Like you just took all of coaching and wrapped it into stories. So I need it's an example. So similar, point. yes. <laughs> I need an example. So can you give me an example of a way in which a story really reveals the rivers of meaning, what people are really believing and doing and the norms in some ways? And then I want to know how well, you use story to change. Yeah. This is this is a story. It occurred to me this morning to go back to a story. When I wrote the third edition, I added two new chapters because what I found is a whole lot of people, you know, I wrote this book originally 20 years ago, and a whole lot of people started focusing on really kind of the coercive aspects of story, about how to control a story and then control someone's behavior. But they missed out on tapping into the rivers of story. Um, and one of the rivers that 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 were that pe- businesses and government and everybody else is realizing we haven't tapped into a, a lot is the river of integrity and trust. And so um, I was looking for big corporate, you know, storytellers. You know, Nike has done storytelling for for you know since the '90s. They had a corporate storyteller, and so they're really sophisticated in how they choose to use storytelling. And if you remember, when Colin Kaepernick uh, took a knee, Nike decided to invest in his story. They amplified his story. They put his picture um, on billboards, and and uh, it the the quotation was "Believe in something, even if it costs you everything." That's an incredibly powerful story, and it's also a risky story because integrity and trust does require risk. Now, in the beginning, everybody thought that was. Stupid. They, you know, stock prices dropped, but sales went through the roof. And now, while uh, uh, two or three years ago, seventeen percent of people who were polled had a negative reaction to that story. Only nine percent have a negative reaction to the story. And we see, as the events of the last couple of weeks uh, have showed, that that was the story that had integrity. And so the NFL has now issued a statement um, acknowledging Black Lives Matter. And so that particular corporate story not only, I think, really substantiated the integrity of, of, of uh, their intent, Nike's intent, but it is a, had a wider impact. So that's a like a river. And if you think about Nike's campaign and what they've stood for and what they've advertised and, the, you know, go back to the whole theme of just do it and the ways in which they started telling the stories of average athletes, not professional athletes, that all right. kind of makes sense that they would take Colin's story. And I, the tagline is a powerful one, even if you don't like what he stood for, that you believe in something, even if it costs you everything. It's kind of consistent with what they had been doing. I can see why they had get there. But what's interesting is now we look back on that one and say, oh, yeah, I get it. But at the time, we weren't ready for it. So there's a river running through that one of, you a know, lot of people standing for what ready. you believe there were- 
There, there was also a large contingent, you can tell in the sales increase, uh, people who were absolutely ready for it. A lot of times when you're um, in the ivory towers of, of um, you know, corporate land, uh, people assume that there's going to be a negative reaction for, for telling a story that opens them up to being vulnerable, um, taking a risk. And what I find is, um, even with personal narrative, uh, that fear is misplaced. People are very responsive um, to to somebody uh, expressing what their moral standpoint is. Because if you think about it, you've always heard, you know, what's the moral of the story? Well, right. um, for a while, people were telling stories that, you know, didn't ever necessarily had morals. They had goals. And I think right. what, what we're finding is that a story without a moral is, is kind of weak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Because historically, there would have been a reason for telling the story and retelling the story as kind of creating the culture or the norms of the group and um, instilling how we do things, what we do here, and therefore um, some of the morals that we do go by. And and I just want to point out that Nike's not pristine clean, you know. They, right. have, they have issues. So all of us have to start somewhere. Um, and if you're afraid that you don't have integrity everywhere in your life and thus you can't tell a story of integrity, that's really self-censorship. It doesn't serve anybody. It, um, this whole notion about um, opening up and telling a story that exposes you a bit, that's a bit vulnerable, uh, you know, I have seen this firsthand in so many ways, and in particular, working with a male who is not, um, was not of the same background of the people around him, I meaning he grew up in a completely different country, completely different culture, and came to his home country or his current home country, as an adult. And he will say, I feel like I never fit. And this is not a story about race. This is a story of I grew up in a completely different place, and I have never really belonged because I never really understood the norms from schools, the TV shows, the jokes, the hundreds of different things, as well as some of the behaviors that go with it. He told that story publicly a few months ago, um, and only, largely because I encouraged him to tell it because it was appropriate uh-huh. to the context and it was about opening him up. And one of the things that he needed to do in particular was to show a little bit more vulnerable side so that people would see right. him as human. Wow, did it work like spades. Just that one yep. story, ripple effect of people through who got identify with uh, feeling like you don't fit and what that means. It's a universal. I think that there, there are universal human experiences we all have. One of them is not fitting in. One of them is feeling like you've, you've been taken in even though you didn't deserve it. One of them is falling in love. One of them is getting dumped. And, and, you know, there's these universal human experiences. And when you tell about your own, people respond because they've been through the same thing. I actually have a storytelling show I, I use for um, diversity where each um, people of color and, and white people tell a story about what it feels like to be included and what it feels like to be excluded. And there's mm-hmm. nobody that doesn't have a story like that. I mean, we've all been to high school, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, and that's trivializing, um, I suppose, um, uh, some of the stories that I heard, which is uh 
a, a man who was forced when he was a child um, to uh, go outside with the rest of his family, and and people forced them to sing um, as uh, you know a form of harassment. So I don't want to. I don't want to to equate the two, um, but what happens is that when we tell about our worst fears, that that they resonate with other people and their worst fears. You know, one of the things that I find most fascinating in the work that I do is, especially in the one-on-one coaching, is how much everybody thinks that their deepest, darkest secret, you know, they're feeling like they're an imposter or it was all luck and it wasn't deserved or any of those is unique to them. Like nobody else is experiencing that. And one of the kindest things I think we can do to people is to tell those stories so that people come to recognize, oh, it's universal. Everybody has these. Um, Well, and and, and I would even, for me, the phrase is we are not alone. You are not alone. Mm -hmm. And there's no, uh, somebody said that belonging is the, the, um, the narcotic we all crave. I'm not sure I'd call it a narcotic, but but when you can create belonging by sharing a story like that, you create a relationship where you have a, a much wider bandwidth of of connection and trust um, across which you can then send messages that 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 may not be as welcome, but the person now has the context. Well, hang on. Let me let me let me look at this through this other person's eye, and we're teaching each other to look through um, each other's eye to walk, take a walk in each other's uh, uh, shoes. Right. All right. We could talk all day about the power of being able to tell those stories and the importance at the, this moment in time, particularly with all that's going on in both sides of the Atlantic around race, that we listen to those stories and that we understand some of the complexity of all those stories and the ways in which people feel separated from and and in some cases badly treated. I want to come backwards, though. Um, to this notion of stories, you were saying that there are some universal human experiences. So the things that we don't fit, that we were taken in and didn't deserve, that we got to dumped, there are several of these. And in particular, you have this notion there are really six stories we have to tell before we can trust. So explain what that's about and what are these six? Well, my background comes from group process facilitation, and so I'm always noticing what helps groups build cohesion and what doesn't. The first story that people want to know before they before they want to hear what you want them to do, because you know, not not I can I talk to you? You're like why? <laughs> um, is people want to know who you are? They want to know you're a good person and that you're here for the right reasons. So when groups can share their who I am stories, what happens is a much deeper level of understanding and connection. And then the why are you here? Like what is it, what's in it for you? Rather than launching into what I think you ought to do and here's, you know, the benefits for you, they know that you're coming to them with your plan because there's something that you're going to get out of it. Now, if the something that you're getting out of it is simply the pleasure of helping, then we have to validate that in some way. People want to, they wish they could, you know, have a videotape of you in the past and see kind of why you do what you do. But the second best thing is to tell a story that illustrates why you do what you do. Um, finally, well, not finally, but 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 in, in an umbrella sense, people want to know what your vision is. 
So you and I could talk about um, how we think storytelling, you know, should work or whatever, but what's our vision? And for me, our vision, my vision is, is um, to create some collective action so that we start to address problems that we can't seem to address individually. That's where I'm going with it. And so if anybody wants to evaluate what it is I say, now they know what my vision is, and they might cut me some slack or help steer me in the right direction because I've taken the time and trouble to share my vision. Values in action are how we do things around here. And um, there are, you know, my value in action around trust is, is uh, redefines trust uh, in, in a way that's, that's a lot more expansive. And so I encourage people to, um, for instance, I don't use contracts. Um, I operate on trust just to illustrate that that's how things used to work. Teaching stories. Very often you can't do a demo. Certainly you don't want to do a demo about an emergency or um, a a terrible failure, but you can teach using a story that causes someone to experientially understand what happens first, second, third, and fourth so that when they go to do this particular skill, they're ready um, for the different stages of it. And then I think uh, one of the most powerful stories I've seen used is is a story that shares that you already know where somebody's coming from. Um, for instance, one of my friends that was an equal opportunity officer, uh, she would always start um, start her stories about, yeah, well, everybody knows equal opportunities for black people. And then all the white people went, Whoa! and all the black people is, uh-huh, yeah, that's what they think. But it 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 absolutely opened up the conversation so that then we can move past and talk about what it is we really want to achieve here. Okay. So when you say these six stories, who are you? Why are you here? What's your vision? What are the values and actions? What are the teaching stories and, and, you know, share that, you know, where people are coming from those six versions. I can do those as a statement, like I can say um, oh, right. who I am is, you know, an instructor and a designer and I care deeply about X, Y, and Z. But that's not what you're getting at. What you're getting at is me telling a no. story that illustrates that. Well, the best illustration for me is, is say, hello, my name is Annette and I'm trustworthy. Yeah. That's, that is not very effective. Um, you want to have some experiential um, uh, evidence of that. Proof is in the behavior. And so when I narrate a story of a time when I was really tested, um, uh, where, you know, it would have been easier uh, to, uh, to take um, a bunch of registrations from one client when they would have overshadowed the five individual registrations I had. When I tell the story about having to say, no, I really can't accept those five, and that person saying, well, then we're not sending anybody then you get a chance to decide whether I am trustworthy. I am paying attention to the to the needs of the participants that were coming to my workshop, um, and I protected them. Um, there's other people who would say, well, I can't trust you to make profit because you, you do things like that. But I'm more interested in people trusting that I'm here for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
That reminds me, when you say that, when we do interviews, we know that some of the best interviews are behavioral interviews where we ask a question and the person responds with an example about a time they did exactly that. But what that does is you're giving a story to illustrate the quality you want the interviewer to know about you. And that's it's right there, front and center. Right. You can't just say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good at resilience. You have to tell a story about that. Okay, so why does the story work so well? So, yes, I can tell the story, but why is it we believe that and we don't believe you're saying that you're trustworthy? Well, it's the same reason why the scientific method tries to exclude anecdotal evidence. We trust what we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch much more than what uh, a statistic tells us. And so our personal experiences are... um, really where we go when we try to figure out what's true and what's false. Well, story is a simulated personal experience. It is when you tell it in ways that that stimulate what images people can see, hear the dialogue, um, uh, uh, imagine the scene, it is almost and sometimes exactly as powerful a personal experience. To the point where you can feel like I was there, even though you were just witnessing someone else tell the story about being there. Okay. And are there particular things, you know, as I'm thinking about these stories, who am I? I want to introduce myself to a new group that I'm leading. And there's particular qualities I want them to know about me. Are there, you know, is there a way to think about framing that opening story? Well, there are a thousand different ways to frame the story. Uh, the way I do it is I ask people is to, to think about the quality that um, they most want this audience to know about them. Um, and once you come up with the quality, uh, then you go back and you, you look into four buckets. You can, you can, the, that will be displayed in a time when you shined. So um, a time where it would have uh, been easier to just justify, you know, um, accepting those registrations. And for me, that story was a a time I shined, a time when I was tempted to do the wrong thing and I didn't do it. Then, just as powerful, sometimes more powerful, is a time I blew it, where um, I I failed my own standards. And, of course, everybody loves to hear a Blewett story. That's just um, that you get double points for being vulnerable. Um, But the other thing is they can hear in your voice that you're never going to let that happen again, that you understood the consequences and that you've decided to be somewhere different. And that's another way to display this quality. Two more buckets that will give you a story would be a, a scene from a movie or a book you can talk about, I remember a lawyer saying, you know, it was the summer of my 12th year when I decided I wanted to be a lawyer because I had read To Kill a Mockingbird and I wanted to be a, the kind of man that Atticus Finch was. So that's a scene, that's a story. And we saw him very differently from that point on. And people leaned in more closely because we had actually met him as a 12-year-old boy the summer of his 12th year in our mind's eye. Um, And then you can uh, uh, come up with a mentor story. Whoever Mm -hmm. taught you about that quality? Um, My mentor, Jim Farr, taught me about the quality of psychological silence, where when I'm listening to someone, my job is 
not to with facial expressions or or uh, body movements or anything to try to guide them one way or the other. My job is to be a receiver so that they have the privilege of of, of actually examining for themselves how what it is they believe and what stories they're living. Okay. That all makes sense. So that is the, when I'm trying to tell people who I am, a time that I shined, especially if I was tempted and I still held strong, a time I blew it, a scene from a movie or a book that influenced me in some ways are the examples that you describe, and then a mentor, something, somebody taught you something and what that says. Okay, I know we're not going to get through all six of these, but I can imagine the why you're here, and I can imagine what the vision is. No, let's stay on that one, the vision is, because the tendency is to articulate the vision as a set of goals. We want to be evaluated as the number one consumer-friendly company or the number one corporate sustainability something or other, or we want to hit a particular goal. But that's not what you're talking about when you say a story about your vision. What do you mean by a story about the vision? Well, um, the vision story is the hardest, let me just say that, because often (laughs) if it's taken out of context, it sounds kind of corny because, you know, it's, 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 it's about your highest aspirations. It's about um, why you're trying to do do something. And so when I tell a, a, a vision story about the storytelling show uh, that I used to facilitate and, and, and want to do again, it was a time when we all came together. The audience was completely diverse, and that's one of the hard things about getting um, people of color and white people in the same room uh, uh uh, it's it's hard to negotiate like where that room's going to be and who's doing the inviting and all that sort of stuff. But we achieved it, and I know it can be done. And so um, I'm working with with um, people who are you know talk, telling their stories about race, and uh, it is very important for me to share. I've already done this. We've um, let me tell you about what it was like because. You know, when you're just about to tell a story that feels risky, it 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 um, they have to decide whether they think I can actually take them there. Same with coaching. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's about where it is we're trying to go, and what happens is that then it shrinks the little frustrations because they're now within the the framework of what it is we're trying to achieve. So yes, I'm scared. Now becomes you know, everybody would be. Um, You're not alone in that. Or should I tell the gritty details? Well, what would you want someone else to do? And uh, the vision then reshapes how we go about finding a story um, and how we shepherd that story out to the public. Does that make sense? It makes a little bit of sense. Now, you did such a brilliant job before saying that there are four ways to tell the who are you story. Are there ways to think about the vision story as well? I use I use the four ways for all of these stories. Ah, so great. So, for instance, what I was just telling you is the story where uh, I feel like we shined, right? Right. And talking about the success of this storytelling show. I could tell you a story about um, a time when I blew it, uh, where I was in dialogue with somebody and, and I got irritated and I was out of my comfort zone and so I, I picked up my dollies and walked out. 
Um, and and so that implies the vision is that no matter how hard it gets, I'm going to stick with this. Right. And the same with a movie um, or, or mentor. Right. Right. Okay, so I take all four of those, the time I shined, the time I blew it, a scene from a movie or a book, or an experience from a mentor, and I can apply that to any of the six to help frame a story that helps, um, as you said, build trust, get people to lean on much closer to me. It's how to find a story. A lot of people are talking about creating story, and I really really want to emphasize the idea as you're finding the story. The stories are already there. Um, and, and so it's like, it's like, why would you dig your own river? That's a lot of work. Um, find the river that's already flowing. And presumably that adds to, um, the authenticity as well. When I find the river, as opposed to, I try to create. Absolutely. Absolutely. Critical. All right. Very. Yeah. Okay, Annette, I have a feeling we could talk forever about these six kind of stories, but this is a perfect moment for a break. So my guest today is Annette Simmons. The book that we have been talking about is The Story Factor. I will also say that Annette has three other fabulous books and a forthcoming one as well, all centered somehow around this notion of stories and creating safe places and so on. The six kind of stories that are important for people to trust you are who are you? Why are you here? What's your vision? What are the values and actions? Meaning, how are we going to do things around here? Teaching stories and stories that share, you know, where the audience is coming or where the group is coming from. So when we come back, I'm going to shift this to talk a little bit about personal narratives and how they're important for leadership. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. That's Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Annette Simmons, and the book that we have been talking about is The Story Factor. I should say this has been named one of the 100 best business books of all time by Penguin, 
and that Annette has a number of other books that are incredibly intriguing, including Whoever Tells the Best Story Wins and Territorial Games, Understanding and Ending Turf Wars. And there is a forthcoming book on women in power, the power to protect. So differences between masculine and feminine stories. Um, What I find intriguing here is that Annette's work and her research finds that there are six stories that people want to know about you in order to trust you. Who are you? Why are you here? What's your vision? How are we going to do things around here? A teaching story that explains experientially what we're trying to understand and sharing how you know where people are coming from, a story that explains your understanding of that. So, Annette, we've been talking about stories in general, and I want to shift this conversation now to talk specifically about personal narrative. But let me ground this conversation for just a moment in that I find that people have a running narrative in their head about what it means to lead, about what they should be doing. And it's only until we can kind of begin to pull that narrative out do we start to help people understand what their next course of action should be to continue to be, could be, change, all of those sorts of things. So I'm interested in your experience of personal narratives. And it will you know, start with a couple of examples of how you've seen personal narratives play out for leaders. Well, what's fascinating one is that that people once they start using storytelling, uh, it automatically challenges their narratives of what it is they think they should do next. Like, for instance, you have leaders who are like, "I need to solve everybody's problem, um, mm-hmm. and I have to do it by myself." That's one narrative. But one of my clients, um, uh, after a class, called me back and told me about uh, about going back to his his. Uh, business group. He is in charge of business communication, and they were rolling out a huge uh, campaign to uh, inform the rest of the company about uh, a reorganization, which is, you know, that's a risky thing. Definitely people want to know why that's going on. And he was a history buff, and so he told the story of Paul Revere, and quite well, but made the point that Paul Revere was not the only one who rode that night. That... um, there were many, many, and that while Paul Revere ended up to be the one story everybody knows about, what we know is that when we're rolling out this business communication campaign, everybody's um, got a role, and um, there are there will be no unsung heroes, um, was his point. And so I think that trying to find a story that articulated what he wanted to do actually um, helped him focus in on this not one but many, uh, which is is different than this you know uh, the old school leadership. I have to do everything myself. Okay, all right, and then presumably that also leads him to see the ways in which he can do more of the not one but many, and exactly. not resort and, to the and, old narrative of solving every problem and doing it by myself. And by telling that story, he was recruiting help. He was like, help me figure out a way to make sure, you know, that, that, that we stick with this. Because that, in a way, that was his value in action story as much as anything else. It's like, it's, it's, it's nobody's doing this alone. We're all doing it together. I have another client that um, has hired me uh, throughout the, uh, the decade. Initially, he was COO of a company. Then he was CEO. And now he's an entrepreneur. He owns when people are, I don't want to say the word nursing home, so now I'm like, boo, 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 senior living. Okay. Senior living. So, 
So anyway, the um, he he actually took a story that I had told in the book, and it was a story about my dog Larry. And um, Larry was a greyhound, so I rescued him from the from the racetrack. And when he came to live with me, he really didn't know how to be a pet. Um, I had to introduce him to the idea of a toy. Uh, he he uh, chased a bone all the way around the backyard until he made that intellectual leap that if he put a paw on it, it would stay still and he could chew it. And he showed no sign of understanding ever that when he was on a leash and he walked on one side of a telephone pole and I walked on the other, we weren't going anywhere. And it was, you know, it wasn't, I could say, you're the dog, you should back off first. But the truth is, I had to back off first. I was I was role modeling. I was, and then when I backed off, he backed off, and we could go one way or the other. Well, um, my friend Bob has told this Larry story over and over and over again to where I think of it almost as, uh, as his story, um, even more than mine. And it's a great way to communicate um, that, that we're not just going to coerce and forge ahead, that whenever we hit a conflict, um, I will back off first, and uh, you can too, and then we'll disentangle ourselves, understanding what it is we're trying to achieve here, and then go one direction or the other. Ah, oh, lovely. I like that. But in so many times guy. we have this narrative in, that is, I am the boss, and I will show weakness if I back off. Can't tell me exactly. how many thousand times I encounter this one, and therefore I can't. Yeah. I can't do the human thing. I can't do the acknowledgement thing. I can't do the even admitting there's any validity in the point of view that somebody else is saying, yeah. which doesn't go over very well. Okay, I love that. And again, it's the story about the dog Larry that allows him to challenge that internal narrative. Okay, these are so good. Can you give me a third one? I can give you a third one. It's one of my favorites. It was. Um, uh, one of the big, big, big international accounting firms, and they hired me to help teach storytelling. And there's an auditorium of, you know, uh, 200 people. And then it comes this time when I teach storytelling, the hardest part is to get, you know, the first person up to share their story. Now, um, I have lots of, of, of ways to get that, but this was, this was a, a very highly competitive environment, and so nobody was willing to go first until um, the director. And he stood up, and uh, he told a story about, he says, you know, I just love watching football, and I was, uh, I'd finished work for the day. There was a football game on. I was excited. I stripped down to my tidy whities I ordered myself a cheeseburger and two beers. And so they arrived, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just enjoying my beers and my burger and my football. And um, then I'm like, okay, well, I'll just set this tray out, outside. And he said, uh, when he set the tray outside, one of the bottles kind of tipped, and he reached to get it, and that's when he heard the click. The door had closed behind him. And he was standing in the hallway in his tidy whities and he said, first thing he did was find a plant he could stand behind, but he realized that had no long-term solution. So he ran for the elevator and kept punching the button, running behind the plant until he found that the elevator opened with no people in it. And then when he gets down to the uh, lobby, he decides speed is going to be my friend. And so he starts to run, and somebody from the desk notices, and they said, what number? And he yelled out his hotel room number, 
grabbed his key, ran back upstairs, and he says he's finally back in his, his hotel room. He goes, I was huffing and puffing, and the, the phone rings. And it's the lady from the desk, and she says, Sir, we just want you to know that if this ever happens again, there's a phone on every floor, and you can call <laughs> us, and we'll come up. And from that moment on, you know, the gates were open. Uh, that story did so many things. It humanized him. It, it illustrated about, you know, asking for help, under, that everybody makes mistakes, that, um, uh, you know, being honest about it is 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 going to be welcomed here because I was you know, I just role modeled telling you my embarrassing story, and um, it really it just changed the environment in a second. I can imagine, and there is power in the senior person doing that one for sure because the moment they're willing to Absolutely. open up, everybody else comes. But heaven yep. forbid you pick on that senior leader and they won't open up. You are locked in for a hard end of the session, wherever you're going. That's why we have those conversations ahead of time on the phone <laughs> going, if you were to share a story, what would it be? Yeah. 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 I just remember this one time I was trying to work with a group who desperately needed as a team more emotional intelligence with each other. They were just failing badly in kind of valuing and appreciating each other. And this was a conclusion that we came to say need to some help. All right. So we gathered together for way too short of a time, the welcome to the world, and we're going to go through everybody's EQ report so as a way of talking, I mean, you know, picking some easy topics and talking about how they could get better at some of the basic things like managing stress among the entire staff, except that everybody read their reports underneath their table so that no one could see their right. their scores. Right. <laughs> it didn't go very far. And you can imagine no. I made great mileage out of that story as well. <laughs> I won't identify the client, but it is it – is, uh, it is intriguing getting people to be willing to open up that first one. All right. And what a metaphor of holding it underneath the table. Oh, I mean, you know, it's the visual aspect of these stories when we tell them. Like if, if you had said nobody would, would be honest, that's different than the visual of everybody holding theirs under their table. Yeah. Absolutely true. And the images you create, I mean, I think that's part of what makes them so memorable. It's not just words, it's images. And I also think there's something about the telling of the story that we somehow believe. It's filled in with detail. It's graphic. There's emotion wrapped in it. And I think we're much more likely to believe a story, even if it's false, than we are to believe a statement, even if it's true. You may disagree with me on that one. Well, I'm I'm not of uh, service to people who tell false stories. So um, uh, agreed, agreed. I don't I don't go there. But but it it is it's it's the secret is in simulating an experience, in simulating that firsthand experience by telling a story that's graphic enough, not too graphic, because they're like I don't care what color the leaves were, um, but enough to where that people can pull from their imagination. I tell a story about Thanksgiving. I won't go into the story, but when I tell it, I realize that everybody there is pulling from their memories of their own Thanksgiving dinners, mm-hmm. and um, and that sets the scene. And so, a lot of times, you only just have to give one detail, and then your listeners will actually supply um, in the theater of their own mind um, lots of details that you didn't mention, but it. It was enough to get them started to make something feel real to them. Okay. 
Absolutely. I Yes. So, and then the, I like your statement that this is about simulating a firsthand experience. Yeah. And that you give enough detail so that people can fill in their own. So they feel like they were there, that they understand it, that they know what it was part about it. Okay. Now, one of the things that I'm intrigued by um, is actually in my own work and this notion of the stories, the narratives that we carry around with us about why I'm valued, why I'm important here. There are probably many of these, but one of the narratives that I encounter is the notion of I'm important because I'm an expert. I know stuff that other people don't know and I can act on that stuff, meaning I can execute it. And it becomes a huge part of people's identity and therefore hard for them to let go of that identity to do a whole number of other things like work on a project that's not in their area of expertise or lead a group who does know more or even, I think, collaborate. I think it's difficult to collaborate when you're holding on to I know stuff. And I'm interested in your experiences, again, of that narrative that my value is around what I know, or are there other ways in which we understand why we're valued? Well, uh, I immediately go to the personal um, uh, experience I have. People um, want to treat me like an expert, um, and certainly I've done a whole lot of, of research, but uh, I, am, uh, I am a listener um, more than I am a teller. And so when I think about uh, my role, I have faith that the wisdom is in the person that I'm working with and that all I need to do is, is to, to, to help their creative intelligence feel warmed and welcome to the point where they will then answer their own questions and also uh, uh, go beyond whatever I thought I had uh, a corner on in terms of, of storytelling. When I'm working with with uh, clients, the um, the story of humility can actually be turned into a fake story. Mm-hmm. And so when when uh, when I run across people who who experience themselves as experts, I will tend. I, I mean, I'm just going to riff here. I will tend yeah. to ask them. So tell me a story about when that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, um, tell me a, a story about when you felt like someone um, uh, was the expert and and um, you ended up feeling, did you feel included or excluded when they, when they acted that way? Mm-hmm. And then get mm-hmm. people to examine their own experiences um, in order to realize, and we're, now we're back to the golden rule, treat right. others as you would like to be treated. And so uh, somewhere along the line, I ran across these three principles. I've never found the source of them, but it was about how to, um, how to, to be heard. And, and it was, one, speak from equality rather than superiority. Two, speak provisionally rather than with certainty. So, you know, it might be that instead of it is. Um, and um, three, let's see, what was the third one? Um, provisionally certainty, oh, being descriptive rather than um, uh, judgmental. So, so instead of saying you're angry, uh, something like, um, I notice that your fists are clenched. Can you tell me what's going on? And I think those 
uh, when I teach communication, those are the three principles I teach that hopefully keep people away from being this expert. Okay. All right. So speak from equality, not superiority. Speak provisionally versus from certainty and give descriptive, speak descriptively versus judgmentally. Easy words to say and sometimes extraordinarily difficult to do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. One of the um, one of the that last one is actually the entire principle of storytelling is is to tell a story rather than to report your conclusion. One of the principles of storytelling is that people value their own conclusions more than they value yours. So you can come in and say what you need to do is, or you can come in and tell a story that walks them through A, B, C, D until they decide. Oh, what I need to do is. Um, and so uh, that's kind of, you know, that's built into the whole ethic of storytelling. Right. But what about stories that we always end, you know, we think about the classic Aesop fables that we, Aesop, or whatever, that we end with the moral. The moral of the story is, I always great at those moral endings. Am I unique that way, or is that what you're meaning, letting people decide their well, own action versus we, you telling them? if we... If we look at how those stories originated, um, they weren't being told, and the moral is. They were right. being told, um, and, and that's, for me, how story uh, is demonstrates its evolutionary role in human behavior. We needed ways to shift our norms away from me, 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 um, because humans survive as a collective much better than when they are individuals. And so these Aesop's Fables stories were um, really designed to, to help us, you know, for instance, the grasshopper and the ant. Um, before somebody added to the moral is, uh, the story just stood on its own, and people realized, well, we, we do have to prepare for the future. Um, don't cry wolf. You know, double check. Um, don't don't ask for help unless you actually need it. These were lessons of normative behaviors that we still need today. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that some people have overworked the stories a little bit. Right, right. Okay, so fair enough. And I, as I know well from my own research, that a lot of those things were more oral histories, and then we've committed them to paper as if they were static in some ways. And they were never that. Most of those oral stories never were that static. Okay. Um, geez, Annette, I feel like we have just so barely scratched the surface. And I'm going to give you like two minutes. I'm intrigued by your forthcoming book. So can you say ah. just a couple of words of what you're finding about masculine versus feminine narratives? Well, uh, the, all of the literature about power up to now has really been written by men and has been characterized in the terms of, of war narratives, dominate or be dominated. And so a lot of the structure of business has been designed based on if you don't dominate someone, then you're inviting yourself to be dominated. Now, with women's narratives, women tend to, rather than look at this this competitive game, women tend to have an internal voice that, that has a different definition of power. And so the way I did this is I asked women to tell me a story about the last time you were powerful. And what happened is their stories were different. Um, they weren't stories about that time I won 
rather than loss by the time I dominated. There were stories about a time I protected where, where dominate or be dominated wasn't even a factor. Um, when women tell a story of power, it is uh, usually talking about uh, protecting uh, someone who's within their circle of moral concern. And women have a, seem to have a wider circle of moral concern. Um, it's not just the kids in our neighborhood that are important to us. It's the kids in Africa um, and Southeast Asia that are important to us. And so when we evaluate, do we have power, we ask ourselves, do I have the power to take care of the people I think that deserve to be taken care of? And so we're finding with the pandemic that the power to protect has been neglected in favor of the power to dominate um, or resist being dominated. And so women's narrative, uh, Jacinda Ahern and, and New Zealand, for instance, are creating a whole different paradigm, a different story about how to respond um, to the virus. It's not necessarily it's an enemy to fight. It is uh, an opportunity for us to, to uh, collectively protect each other. And presumably, this is not uniquely down to men do the the dominate narrative and women do the protect narrative. Because I can think of a number of men, I think, who would probably fall more in the protect narrative than they do the other. Or, exactly. or is that not true? Exactly. Okay. The okay. way I talk about feminine and male narratives is that there's two primarily overlapping bell curves. And it's only when you look at the edges that stick out to the right or the edges that stick out to the left that you understand kind of how the subtle differences are in the middle. We're more Mm -hmm. alike than different. Um, But one one of the things that technology and algorithms have done is that they've begun to validate one and not the other. And so now we're going to have to go back um, and and undo some of the uh, biases based on everything is uh, to be determined by whoever is the strongest, whoever wins, gets the right to, to uh, say what goes. Um, it's time to look at what are what's the view from the collective. And I think right. that women tend to, you look at the Women's March and the eight different, you know, human rights organizations that they were marching for, um, it, it does tend to be more of a feminine, and of course okay. there are, Men who okay. are more feminine than women, et cetera. Yep. Right. We could talk about this one forever. So I'm going to have to have you come back again for another episode when you've gotten the book well, that'd finished. Be great. My guest today is Annette Simmons. The book we've been talking about is The Story Factor. I think the highlight for this episode in particular for me is the power of understanding our own personal narratives of what it is we think about as leaders and how we define power even. Understanding that and telling stories that allow us to act in a different way. So Annette, thank you for being a guest. Thank you so much. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.